Imagine your new bathroom. A sparkling new tub, a modern shower conversion, a seamless new wall, all done in as little as a day. Introducing Bathfitter. Join over 2 million customers delighted with our one-of-a-kind remodeling process. No demolition, no mess. Guaranteed for life. Installed in as little as a day. Book a free in-home consultation at bathfitterpodcasts.com and get our best offer of the year right now. Bathfitter, 35 years of better bath remodels. Education. This is an issue of um, our civil rights episodes, and we're going to get right on into it. We're going to be sharing um, information on the Transcontinental Railroad, Chinese immigrants, and their story. And I'm pulling information today from history.com, and you can type in uh, Chinese immigrants or something like that. Let's get right on into it. Um, this was written by uh, Leslie Kennedy and updated April 28, 2022. It was originally written May 10, 2019. Building the Transcontinental Railroad, um, how 20,000 Chinese immigrants made it happen. At first, the railroad companies were reluctant to hire Chinese workers, but the immigrants soon proved to be vital. They toiled through back-breaking labor during the most frigid winters and blazing summers. Hundreds died from explosions, landslides, accidents, and disease. And even though they made, a ma- made major contributions to the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad, these 15,000 to 20,000 Chinese immigrants have been largely ignored by history. Looking back, historians say the Chinese who began arriving in the United States in significant numbers during the California Gold Rush, 1848 to 1855, were deemed too weak for the dangerous, strenuous job of building the railroad east from California. Hilton Ob- Robin Singer, Associate Director of the Chinese Railroad Workers and North American Project at Stanford University, says the Central Pacific Railroad Director Charles Crocker recommended hiring Chinese workers after a job ad resulted in only a few hundred responses from white laborers. But Crocker's plan hit opposition amid an anti-Chinese sentiment stemming from the California gold rush that gripped that state. Obzenzinger told NBC, noting that construction superintendent James Strobridge didn't think the immigrants were strong enough to do the job. 
Nonetheless, the Central Pacific Railroad was desperate, says Gordon Chang, Stanford professor of American history and author of the book Ghosts of Gold Mountain. Quote, white workers whom the company wanted did not sign on in numbers anything close to what was needed, he says. Crocker's colleagues objected at first because of the prejudice, but then relented as they had few other options. The idea of hiring Chinese, it appears, might have been raised first by Crocker's Chinese manservant, end of quote. According to the Chinese Railroad Workers Project, Central Pacific started with a crew of 21 Chinese workers in January of 1864. In January 1865, they convinced that Chinese workers were capable. The railroad hired 50 Chinese workers and even 50 more, the project notes. But the demand of labor increased and white workers were reluctant to do such backbreaking hazardous work. Leland Stanford, president of the Central Pacific, former California governor and founder of the Stanford University, told Congress in 1865 that the majority of the railroad labor force were Chinese. Without them, he said, quote, it would be impossible to complete the western portion of this great national enterprise within the time required by the acts of Congress. More Chinese immigrants began arriving in California and two years later, about 90% of the workers were Chinese. Hong Kong and China were as close in travel time as the Eastern U.S., Chang says. Quote, the Irish, who made up the majority of the Union Pacific workforce, which was laying tracks westward from Omaha, Nebraska, did not come out to California in large numbers until after the completion of the Transcontinental. Their job duties included everything from unskilled labor to blacksmithing, tunneling, and carpentry, and according to the project, with most work done with hand tools. <clears throat> Excuse me. Of course, the large number of immigrants working for Central Pacific and their hard work didn't mean they were well-treated or well-compensated for their efforts. According to the project, Chinese workers hired in 1864 were paid 26 a month, working six days a week. They eventually held an eight-day strike in June of 1867. Quote, Chinese received 30 to 50 percent lower wages than whites for doing the same job. They had to pay for their own foodstuffs, Chung says. Uh, further quote, they also had the most difficult and dangerous work, including tunneling and the use of explosives. There is also evidence they faced physical abuse at times from supervisors. They protested these in the long hours that they used their collective strength to challenge the company. The strike ended without pay parity after Central Pacific cut off food, transportation, and supplies to the Chinese living in camps. But Chang says the strike had, was not held in vain. Working conditions improved following the strikes. Quote, they scared the pants off the com company leaders, he says. Despite Chinese workers' contributions to building the America Historic Infrastructure Project, Chang says their history is often forgotten. 
quote, many books on the railroad focus on the big four and the barons of the UP, he says. Quote, workers include the Irish receive little attention. What is more written history has marginalized the Chinese as with all other minorities, including Irish being part of those minorities, I will add. Now, this was a, a somewhat, I mean, it was an okay account um, of, of this time period. I think they could have done better um, in putting this together. And so let's do a, okay, let's see. So I bring up another source. Okay, let's see here. All right, this is from uh, medium.com, and it says, truth, the Chinese were slaves in the U.S. for centuries. The historians lied that the Chinese were laborers. No, they were slaves sold by their parents in China to slave owners. Okay, actually, I, I read this one before. Sorry. There's, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of really good sources. Um, I mean, there's so many aspects. I mean, they weren't just laborers or slaves just on the railroad. There was, there was a lot of different um, ways that Chinese were used. So I'm going to refer back to wikipedia.org. Chinese labor in southern states in the United States. So, I, I'm sorry to jump around, but I, I, I want to... My main attention is the Chinese right now and, and the different ways they were used to build up uh, America. So, um, that's my focus. So, bear with me as I kind of go from one source to another. All right, again, this is from Wikipedia.org. After slavery was abolished in the United States, Chinese laborers were imported to the South as cheap labor to replace freed blacks on the plantations. Many of the early Chinese laborers came from sugar plantations in Cuba and after the Transcontinental Railroad was completed. California also contributed to the labor supply. These laborers formed communities in the pockets of southeastern part of the United States, encountering racist policies and crossing paths with the African-American communities. Reconstruction and the labor problem. In the mid-19th century, Southern planters argued that because of the Civil War and Reconstruction policies, there wasn't a significant labor pull to maintain the plantations. Post-emancipation, freed blacks demanded higher wages and migrated to rejoin families broken apart by slavery. In response, Southern planters argued that black laborers were unreliable and unstable and implemented black codes with labor provisions 
that would limit the mobility of black people. Starting as early as 1865, Southern newspapers began printing editorials and letters calling for Chinese labor to be the new labor supply. This interest was sparked in part by accounts boasting that the Chinese contract labor attributed to the increase in Cuban agricultural imports. The Chinese effectively became the new labor supply, but were positioned society, societally as the same level as African Americans. The importation of Chinese labor to the South did not happen overnight. In February 1866, R.S. Chilton, the Commissioner of U.S. Immigration, argued in his report to Congress that under the 1862 Act prohibiting coolie trade, importation of Chinese labor to the South should be prohibited and, Southern, and Southerners should instead work out contracts with free blacks. However, because the commissioner associated the Chinese immigration as involuntary immigration, Southern publications and advocates of importing Chinese labor found a loophole by arguing that Chinese laborers were voluntary and had left Cuba after their eight-year contracts expired. So, um, what do you think of that account? Um, are you an expert on, on this time period or on, um, you know, these things that I'm sharing with you? you have some suggestions on, um, you know, on any of these topics, we would, we'd love to hear from you. So we need to take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back. Stay tuned. Right now, right now, you might be you struggling might be through struggling your classes class. or even failing them. You might be worried that you may not finish high school. There might have even been a thought that you may not be smart enough. Well, the New Heights Educational Group begs to differ. We not only think you are smart enough, but with our help, you will complete your high school diploma. The New Heights Educational Group strives to improve your academic success through its tutoring services. To learn more, please visit newheightseducation.org and contact us. New Heights Educational Group educational resources to help reach your goals. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying the New Heights show on education and want to support or donate to our organization, please visit www.newheightseducation.org. And while you're there, check out our online store. Welcome back uh, to the New Heights Show on Education. This show um, is our civil rights show, and we're discussing, um, we were discussing the Chinese in America. Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring Curiosity Stream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste Made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. And less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com. So um, now I'm going to switch topics and 
Um, I came across this. Um, this is from Snopes.com. And it says, nine facts about slavery they don't want you to know. A widely circulated list of historical facts about slavery dwells on the participation of non-whites as owners and traders of slaves in America. It says, a circulating list of nine historical facts about slavery um, accurately details the participation of non-whites in slave ownership and trade in America. Origin. One of the less well-known aspects of the history of slavery is how many and how often non-whites owned and traded slaves in early America. The free black slaveholders could be found at one time or another in each of the 13 original states and later in every state that content or countenance slavery. Historian R. Halliburton Jr. observed that black people bought and sold other people, uh, other black people raises vexing questions. For 21st century Americans like African-American writers, Henry Louis Gates Jr., who writes that it betrays class divisions that have been, that have always existed within the black community. For others, it's an excuse to deflect the shared blame for the institution of slavery in America away from the white people. In the latter vein, a nine facts about slavery they don't want you to know mem, or memi, uh, lays out uh, a mixture of true, false, and misleading historical claims. Well address each one in turn. The first legal slave owner in American history was a black tobacco farmer named Anthony Johnson. Another, um, North Carolina's largest slaveholder in 1860 was a black plantation owner named uh, William Allison. American Indians owned thousands of black slaves. In 1830, there were 3,775 free black people who owned 12,740 black slaves. Many black slaves were allowed to hold jobs, own businesses, and own real estate. Brutal black-on-black -black slavery for common, was common in Africa for thousands of years, and most slaves brought to America from Africa were purchased from black slave owners. Slavery was common for thousands of years. I, yeah, definitely for thousands. Um, white people ended legals to tell slavery. The first, um, okay, Anthony Johnson, this is possibly true. The, okay, let, let's start again. I don't want to confuse you. Okay, so the first one I mentioned, the first legal slave owner in American history was a black to, tobacco farmer named Anthony Johnson. Okay, this person says, possibly true. The wording of the statement is important. Anthony Johnson was not the first slave owner in American history, but he was, according to historians, among the first to have his lifetime ownership of a servant legally sanctioned by a court. A former indentured servant himself, Anthony Johnson, was a free Negro who owned a 250-acre farm in Virginia during the 1650s, 
with five indentured servants under contract to him. One of them was a black man named John Kaser, who claimed that his term of service had expired earlier and Johnson was holding him illegally. In 1654, a civil court found that Johnson, in fact, owned Kaser's services for life, an outcome historian R. Haller Burton Jr. calls one of the first known legal sanctions of slavery, other than that, other than as a punishment for a crime. And then uh, the next one I mentioned, North Carolina's largest slaveholder in 1860 was a black plantation owner named William Ellison. Uh, this account says this is false. William Ellison was a very wealthy black plantation owner, cotton gin manufacturer, who lived in South Carolina, not North Carolina. According to the 1860 census, in which his surname was listed as Ellerson, he owned 63 black slaves, making him the largest of the 171 black slaveholders in South Carolina, but far from the largest overall slaveholder in the state. And then um, American Indians owned thousands of black slaves. Okay, this, this account says, yes, this is true. Historian Taya Miles provided this snapshot of the Native American ownership of black slaves at the turn of the 19th century for Slate Magazine, January 2016. Uh, quote, Miles places the number of enslaved people held by Cherokees at around 600 at the start of the 19th century and around 1500 at the time of the westward removal in 1838 to 1839. The Creeks, uh, Choctaws, Chickasaws, she said, held around 3,500 slaves across three nations as the 19th century began. Slavery inched its way slowly into Cherokee life, Miles told me. When a white man moved into a native location, usually to work as a trader or as an Indian agent, he would own African slaves. It's such a person also had a child with a Native American woman, as was not uncommon. The half-European, half-Native child would inherit the enslaved people and their children under white law, as well as the right to use tribal lands under tribal law. This combination put such people in a position to expand their wealth, eventually operating large farms and plantations. The next one was in 1830, there were 3,775 free black people who owned 12,740 black slaves. Okay, this is approximately true from this report. According to historian R. Halliburton Jr., there were approximately 319,599 free blacks in the United States in 1830. Approximately 13.7% of the total black population was free. A significant number of these free blacks were the owners of slaves. The census of 1830 lists 3,775 free Negroes who owned a total of 12,760 slaves. Okay. Uh, the next one was many black slaves were allowed to hold jobs, own businesses, and own real estate. This account says is somewhat true. There were exceptions, but generally speaking, especially after 1750, 
by which some time slave codes had been entered into law books in uh, most of the American colonies, the black slaves were not legally permitted to own their own property or businesses. This is from the Oxford Companion um, to American Law in 2002. It says, under these early codes, slaves had virtually no legal rights in most areas. They could be executed for crimes that were not capital offenses for whites. The, their testimony was restricted in legal cases and cannot be used either for or against whites. Trials or slaves were essential, were usually um, by special courts. And it says uh, slaves could not own property, move about without consent of their owners, or even legally marry. Okay, the next point was brutal black-on-black -black slavery was common in Africa for thousands of years. Yes, this is true. And the sense of the phenomenon of human beings enslaving other human beings goes back thousands of years, but not just among blacks and not just in Africa. Very true. This is very true. Um, most slaves brought to America from Africa were purchased from black owners. Okay, so this is sort of true. And, and it is true in some cases. Um so, it's true in some cases, but certainly not all cases, right? So, historian Stephen Mentz describes the situation more accurately in the introduction to his book, African American Heroes, a documentary reader, 1619 to 1877. Apologists for the American slave trade long argued that European traders did not enslave anyone. They simply purchased Africans who had been already enslaved and otherwise would have been put to death. Thus, apologists claimed the slave trade actually saved lives. Oh boy, what what a loaded... Okay, <laughs> I don't know about you, but that's just insulting. Such claims represent a gross distortion of, ta of the facts. Some independent slave merchants did in fact stage raids on unprotected African villages, kidnap and enslave Africans. Most professional slave traders, however, set up bases along the West, Coast, West African coast where, purchased, where they purchased slaves from Africans in exchange for firearms and other goods. Before the end of the 17th century, England, France, Denmark, Holland, Portugal had all established slave trading posts in the West African coast. Yet to simply say that Europeans purchased people you had already been enslaved seriously distorts historical reality. While there had been a slave trade within Africa prior to the arrival of the Europeans, the massive European demand for slaves and the introduction of firearms radically transformed West and Central African society. A growing number of Africans were enslaved for petty debts or minor criminal or religious offenses, or following unprovoked raids on unprotected villages. An increasing number of religious wars broke out with the goal of capturing slaves. European weapons made it easier to capture slaves. Okay, uh, the next one was slavery was common for thousands of years. This is true, as noted above. Though how common slavery has been and what specific nature of that slavery 
has varied according to time and place. Yep, that is true as well. All right. White people ended legal chattel slavery. Um, so for this account, it says it re it's rather self-serving to claim that white people ended legal chattel slavery in the United States, much less ending ended chattel slavery, period. Given that the overwhelming majority of blacks in the U.S. could not vote, could not run for political office, or even in every other way conceivable, were excluded from the institutional power. Moreover, even as some white people were laboring to put an end to slavery, many others were fighting to preserve it. Hence the Civil War, right? We, we know this, but a lot of people don't really understand the Civil War. I mean, that's something that we should focus on in a future episode. But, okay, further, further going on with this. It says, slavery was eliminated in America via the efforts of people of various ethnicities, including Caucasians, who took up the banner of the abolitionist movement. I agree. I think this is a, a very good way to say it. The names of the white leaders of that movement tend to be better known than those of the black leaders, among whom were David Walker, Frederick Douglass, Dred Scott, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Nate Tanner, and many others. When Congress passed and the states ratified the 13th Amendment in 1965, it was in the combination of many years of work by the multiracial movement. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of today's show. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I started with the Chinese, and then I wanted to share that um, brief breakdown with you. But uh, I'll be sharing more in a future episode and continue to explore some of the, the issues that America has faced, improved, and and so forth so and the civil rights movement in general i want to remind you that this show airs sundays by 5 p.m eastern standard time and um and i have another show called education in the news and it um it airs on wednesdays by 6 p.m eastern standard time so check that show out too and then there's a whole bunch of other shows that you may be interested in on, on our radio.newheightseducation.org. Until next time. We hope you we hope enjoyed you today's enjoy show. show. Don't forget to rate us and follow us on your podcast player. Check out our show page, radio.newheightseducation.org, for monthly announcements and other happenings. Imagine your new bathroom. 
A sparkling new tub, a modern shower conversion, a seamless new wall, all done in as little as a day. Introducing Bath Fitter. Join over 2 million customers delighted with our one-of-a-kind remodeling process. No demolition, no mess. Guaranteed for life. Installed in as little as a day. Book a free in-home consultation at bathfitterpodcasts.com and get our best offer of the year right now. Bath Fitter, 35 years of better bath remodels. 